Our scripture today is found in Matthew 5, verses 3 to 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy Fourth of July weekend. It's been a lovely weekend. First real hot weekend of the summer, right? Lots of sweating, lots of barbecuing. Let's take time and give thanks um, for those who have protected us and bring us life of freedom in our country, but also for the ones, the one to whom they point, the 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 faithful one who gave his life so that we could be safe in God's presence. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask for, uh, well, we just acknowledge our need for you and how dependent upon you we are for, for all things. We are grateful for men and women who have given their lives and risked their lives to provide us with freedom and safety. And we're thankful for being able to celebrate that this weekend. We are thankful for the one to whom they ultimately point, to you, our faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ who has uh, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died, and risen again to intercede for us in the very presence of God, that we might come boldly, yet humbly, because of your work on our behalf. Thank you for conquering our ultimate enemies, sin and death, and we ask for your presence now as we study your word, as we come to you. Do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, okay. I've gotten to a point in my eyesight where I need bifocals. So you're going to see me shift to read smaller print and, you know, have the minds to be able to glance at the page from a distance. It's the way that goes. It's coming. It's coming for you. So don't laugh. (laughs) It's coming for you. Uh, We are beginning a new series. I'm really excited about this series. Um, We're basically going to be parking our uh, attention in Chapter 5 of Matthew for the summer for the rest of the summer, and particularly in the passage that's known as the Beatitudes. And basically what we're going to be considering throughout this new series is what is a Christian, what should a Christian long to be like? What should a Christian long to be like? What kind of people should we set our hearts on becoming? What kind of people? Now, Jesus lays down eight characteristics in Matthew 5, in these Beatitudes that we're going to look at for the summer, that are character traits, and they're strong coming from him. Why? Because he lived out those character traits himself. He not only calls us to these character traits, says this is what you ought to be like, but he also is the embodiment of them fully. And so we'll see that he's not just a good role model, that he himself has completed the race for us. And it's, it's tempting for us. Usually we'll go to a list like this and say, okay, yeah, I'm going to be like this. I'm going to work hard at this. 
And ultimately, over the series, what I just wanted us to see is that there's no way. There's no way that you can do that by trying hard. You have to see Jesus in your place, fulfilling them as the fulfillment for you. And then you're free to begin to experience those kinds of traits in yourself more and more. We're going to get to that. So today, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the attitudes. This is an, the first attitude that we should be like is spiritual poverty. We should have spiritual poverty. The thing that we should long for, the thing that we should want most in our life is spiritual poverty. And I want to I point out that looking at this list as we go through through the summer is not an exercise in self-criticism where we're just looking at our navel and we're beating ourselves up mentally and emotionally because we're, there's no way that we can live up to it. It's not an exercise just simply in that, but it's a study of the attributes of Jesus. It's a study of the attributes of Jesus. And the first study we see here, spiritual poverty, that Jesus was spiritually poor. Now, we're going to look at three things. We're going to see what, what it's not, what spiritual poverty is not. We're going to take a look at what it is, and then we're going to see where, where do we find it? Where do we find spiritual poverty? Okay, what it's not. What's interesting about the context of Matthew and Jesus' words in Matthew is that they're going out towards uh, Jews of the day, religious people of the day, but it's not that simple. It's not just like super religious people. Uh, what happened was that there were two main groups of Jews in this time. Now, this is not clear-cut. There is a, a kind of a blending that's going on. For example, Greek was the common language of the day, and through archaeology and other kinds of studies, we've come to find that even Jews in Palestine were, were more attuned to Greek and the culture that was surrounding them than we uh, had originally thought in earlier years. So scholarship showing that it's not quite a clear-cut um, division, but it's helpful to understand that there were Palestinian Jews and there are diaspora Jews. Let's look at the diaspora Jews for a second. Now, back in uh, 586, Jerusalem fell. And the diaspora Jews were the descendants of those Jews who were exiled from Jerusalem, who were scattered throughout the different areas, right? And some went to Babylon, and others went to Egypt. You can read in Jeremiah chapter 42 how he, he laments that he's in Egypt, right? So you have these these destinations for the descendants. These are the descendants that came from the Jews in exile. And what happened was that after uh, 538 BC, some of the Jews had returned to Judea and began to rebuild the, the rebuilding process of the temple after the city had been sacked. You can read that about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. But others of those who were scattered remained in their new, newly established homes. And so, for example, in Egypt, there was an, era, there was an island uh, that a new temple was built upon. And Palestinian Jews thought it was an aberration. They just didn't want to even hear about that. And one of the things that the diaspora Jews were famous for, like Alexandria was one, um, when the city of Alexandria was established in 325 BC, many Jews migrated there. And by the time Christ was born, the city of Alexandria had about a quarter of the population that were Jewish from the diaspora. Maybe as much as 30%. Now, what's going on here? One of the things the Jews of the diaspora did with culture was that they really just blended with it. They blended with it well. I mean, there were particularities about them being Jewish, 
but they really blended. And so you can find records of diaspora Jews uh, officiating uh, pagan temple ceremonies and public ceremonies for which there were sacrifices made, sacrifices made to some sort of uh, deity, to some sort of Greek or Roman deity, right? You have seen these kinds of things happening in the diaspora Jews. Uh, you would have seen them taking a part in city life in all manner of it. And there wouldn't have been a lot of distinction between uh, what, they, what they proclaimed for their Judaism and their religion and the culture around them. They overbit and took up culture around them, right? Not so in Jerusalem, you had, you had the Palestinian Jews, and there, the main distinction, simply, the biggest distinctions you can think about would be the use of Hebrew and Aramaic language and the presence of the center of worship being in Israel itself, right? So those Jews said, no, to worship God correctly, we have to be in, in Israel itself. And then there were two, uh, two sects of these Palestinian Jews. There were Sadducees and Pharisees. There were others, but these were two main ones. The Sadducees were interesting because they enjoyed, uh, they only acknowledged the first five books of Moses as the Bible. They only acknowledged the first. So they were super strict, and they were also a, um, there was no concern for popular support. They are an aristocratic, high priestly group, and their main concern was running the temple. So they're withdrawing from culture, whereas the diaspora Jews are blending in with culture, the Palestinian Jews are withdrawing from it, right? The Pharisees enjoyed popular support, however, and they weren't priests, but they were rabbis, and they were also very much centered on the the focus of worship, the center of worship being in Israel, right, in Jerusalem, but they were also withdrawing from culture. You see in some of the early persecutions of the church, some of the fiercest persecution were among the Pharisees because this was an aberration. Christianity was an aberration of Judaism. It wasn't a reform movement. It was an aberration. So you've got one side, diaspora Jews, who are blending in with culture. They're saying, let's take the fact that God has dispersed us, and we don't know what his plan is redemptively, but the old days of his presence in the temple are gone, and here we are in these different settings, and let's try to figure out how to live distinctively in these different settings. And we have the freedom to engage and try to figure out what that means. And so you have them even writing, trying to write new scripture in addition to the scripture that had been canonized already. And you have different attempts like this. It might be akin, I think the best way you could think about it to build a bridge might be akin to liberal Christianity where there are people who proclaim Christ, but they really enter into the culture and blend with it and take on the different aspects of the culture. And then you might consider the uh, Palestinian Jews as more conservative in their nature. Compare it with conservative Christianity, where we're to withdraw from culture. We're to keep safe from the influence of culture. We can only do worship this way. One group is more focused and narrow-minded. One group is more broad-minded. Both groups felt like they had what they need to be spiritually who they were meant to be. And one of the things that happens here is Jesus sets down in front of a crowd to teach, and he opens his mouth, and this is what he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so he says, it's not, it's not that you are spiritually free because you're blending with culture. It's not that you're spiritually free because you're withdrawing from culture. 
is that you're spiritually free if you first acknowledge your spiritual poverty. And that's all of you. That's any particular group of you. So what we have, what it's not, it's not withdrawing, it's not entering, uh, blending in with culture. What is it? And one of the things that's interesting about Matthew's account is that he takes a word for poor that's used for an intense neediness, an intense neediness, where there's a poverty present uh, in that day, and the word was used for a kind of poverty that the only way out of it was to receive charity. The only way out of that poverty was to receive charity. And there was an intense distress about it. You felt the distress in your life. You felt it. You felt the distress. It was a real distress. And so poverty was having no resources to be able to live, to be able to have freedom to live, to be able to live with blessing with the presence of God and the freedom of worship and the being able to live life in an identity that God gives you. Sorry, I forgot my water over here. So Matthew takes this word for poor and he attaches the word spiritual to it. And he's saying that to have life and to flourish and to, um, uh, to ha- be everything that you should be spiritually, the first thing to you, you need to admit is your neediness. Now, in the Gospels, one of the things that we see is that this comes in primarily two ways. The first neediness that we have is that there's nothing we can do. Whether it's blending with culture or withdrawing with culture, no. Jesus says there's something that is present in spiritual reality that actually transforms the way that you live with everybody actually transforms the way that you live with everybody. The thing about the Palestinian Jews, they hated the diaspora Jews. Think about the diaspora Jews, they couldn't put up with the closed-mindedness of the Palestinian Jews. We're Jews too. So you have intensely religious people, you have intensely blended people coming from the same lineage, and they hated one another. And it was easy to see the narrow-mindedness of those in Palestine. They were focused, they were narrow-minded, they were shut down, and they they were bothered by almost anybody but them, and even sometimes they were bothered by themselves. And the diaspora Jews prided themselves on not being bothered by anyone. We can blend in no matter what. We can be distinctively Jewish and blend in. We know how to adapt with the circumstances God has given us. We know how to adapt. And Jesus comes along and says, it's neither by withdrawing or blending in that you'll find the freedom you need but there's something there's a kind of spiritual poverty that is so profound that it'll give you something that you need to transform the cultures around you transform your own life transform your own culture as well as those you come in contact with what is it first of all it's the fact that we can't save ourselves The reality, our spiritual reality, is that there's an enslavement. There's an enslavement. There's a neediness. There's a desperation about our spiritual reality. We cannot come into God's presence on our own strength. We don't have what it takes to come into his presence and and have a flourishing relationship with him. Why? 
because even our best works, even our righteousness, even the things that we would claim to be the things that we could recommend to God won't do it because there's sin involved in our lives. There's a lot of miscommunication about what sin is. A lot of you have grown up thinking sin, um, I'm sinful because I sin in particular, right? I'm sinful because I sin in particular. But the Bible says that you actually sin in particular because you're sinful. And so that sinfulness touches everything that you do, whether it's serving God or making love to your wife or going on a date or working at your office job. It touches everything that you do. And so the very first picture Jesus gives us is that we are too impoverished. If you want blessedness, if you want the blessing that becomes a follower of God, a member of the kingdom, the first thing you have to acknowledge is that you are incapable. You're incapable of coming to God on your own. There's no way. Think about it. Honor Elizabeth, my daughter, and I have been talking about this lately. She's been trying to feel secure in the fact that God... um, God has stood in her place and, and become her record for her. She's trying to understand what that means. And she equates it like a lot of you may have throughout the years with trying to do good things. And she, she was so funny. She wanted a, um, she was like, Dad, I think I want to get to know God better. And I know that you've told me that we get to know him through the Bible more. So I want to read the Bible and so I looked online. She said, is there a checklist for, like, reading the Bible? Honor's very naturally sort of geared towards checklists. And uh, I said, sure. And so I tried to look up some kids' versions. She said, no, and I showed them to her. She's like, no, 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 no. What's that that you have here? And I showed her. Do I have one in here? Yeah, I showed her, like, uh, something like this, where I just, it was day by day and month by week by week and month by month and year by year, you know. McShane's reading calendar. She says, that's it. That's the one I want. I want this old Scottish Presbyterian minister's checklist who reads through the Old Testament once and the New Testament and Psalms twice in a year. That's me. Sign me up. So we printed one out. You know, we have one for She's checking it off, reading the thing. But when she's sinful, when she notices an attitude towards her brother that shouldn't be there, you know, she's not noticing in the moment. She's just fierce in the moment. She's like, I can take you as, you know. And this is, this is on her, and she's seven, and Ezra's, you know, 12, and that's the way it goes between brother and sister. But there are, we talk through why she does those things in particular, and we come to the idea, it's, you're not sinful because you sin. You're, you sin in particular against your brother because you're sinful. And that starts to worry her. Well, how do I know that I can come to God? I said, do you know that God stood in your place and that he died for you in the person of Jesus? Why would God need to die for you if you weren't so bad off? but he did die for you, and he loves you, and you can come to God freely, not because you're coming in what you do or don't do, but because you're coming in what he has done for you on your behalf. I kind of get that, Dad. She's working on it. We're praying about it together. That's the gospel. Spiritual poverty of the gospel. But it goes further than that. It's not just that you have to admit that there is, there's nothing within you that will recommend you to God. Not even living a moral life. You know, you can avoid God just as much through living moral life than as you can through living an immoral one. Immorality is easier to see fleeing from God in, right? 
But morality is just as uh, insidious. You can check your checklist. You can feel like you've lived a life in such a way that now God owes you. That now God owes you. And Jesus says, no, that's not the case. That's not the case. You have nothing within you. And not only that, it's not just the way that you come into the kingdom, acknowledging your spiritual poverty, your intense spiritual need, right? It's also the way that you um, grow in the kingdom. Now, one of the, there was a, there was one theologian that I read that's, that made this point. I think he's right. The more that I examine it, I mean, I'll talk with Bob LaRocca afterwards, and we'll sort of uh, parse out the finer points of the theology around this. <clears throat> but th- this theologian said, the main difference between the Reformation church, as churches, and Rome in church, get this, he says that it's not so much justification by faith. Why did he say that? Because the, if you look in Catholic, you know, uh, Catholic theology, you'll see justification by faith there. Right? So it's there. Justification by grace. Right? You'll see that. You'll see that in Catholic theology. But, but, he said, where the problem lies is sanctification by grace. Catholicism doesn't believe in sanctification by grace, whereas the Reformation does. And what does that mean? It means that not the thing that brings us in to God's presence, the spiritual poverty, the abject poverty that we have spiritually to recommend ourselves and so that we need to rely on Jesus, that's what brings us into God's presence, right? That's the exact same thing, however, that grows us in God's presence. So why have we, you know, we've discussed over the past weeks, why do you sin in particular? Because you're a sinner. We just said that. Okay. But why are you a sinner? In a particular moment, why does your sinfulness influence the way that you do things in such a way that it honors yourself or honors something else, but it does not honor God? Why? Because you've forgotten this. You've forgotten your spiritual poverty. You withdraw from culture, or you've grown, you know, like you, you're frustrated with folks who have withdrawn from culture because of their Christianity. And Jesus said, that's not, that's not the spiritual poverty that I'm talking about or the results of the kind of character that I want you to have. And I don't want you to blend in with culture, forgetting everything that you've been taught and just sort of going, going by your own internal instinct, your own internal criteria, I want you to have a transformed relationship, and it only comes through this kind of spiritual poverty. The reality is, is that both of those groups, the, the, the more uptight group, those who withdraw, are more narrow-minded. It's easy to see that because they're angry with you, and they're angry with other people. And maybe you've been one of those people who've been angry at other people around you. So it's, it's pretty easy to see that. But you know, the broader-minded, engaging with culture, blending with culture, sort of adapting to any situation and figuring it out as you go, there's a, there's a quality of that that is really strong. Coming from a creative background, I appreciate that approach. I really do. But the reality is you can be, there's a way to be open-minded and still be just as narrow-minded still be just as judgmental. You can come from a, a broader, more open sort of position in life, spiritually, and the only people that you're really angry are the people who are tight 
and don't like your approach to things. You're angry with them. You're judgmental towards them, right? And if you're broad, if you're narrow-minded, you're judgmental towards almost anything, but you consider yourself discerning. The reality is, if this is true, if spiritual poverty is the bottom line, it's where we start, then neither group has any kind of potential or power at all to judge the other one. Why? On this level, why? I'm not talking about discernment. Good discernment is important. Because you're both spiritually, abjectly poor. And there's neither... There's no way that either group can come to God. And Jesus says that if you are spiritually poor like this, then your interactions with one another, with those who are spiritually narrow-minded and those who are spiritually broad-minded, your interactions, no matter where you fall, will be one of a generous nature, one of a kingdom-quality nature. This is, you'll be able to treat each other with respect, with love. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus Jesus lists to us of eight character qualities. You have to see why it's not a checklist because there's no way that you can live up to it. There's no way you can do it. There's no way. You're going to fail. You're going to go home. You might go home for a time and say, okay, spiritually poor. That's me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be spiritually impoverished. And the reality is that you'll find something that you'll figure merits something in your life within you. You'll find something Paul said in Ephesians 2 that it's not by works that you've been saved, but it's by grace. It's a gift of God so that no one might boast. No one. Whether you're blending with culture, whether you're withdrawing from culture, neither is the spiritual poverty Jesus is talking about. And yet you see Jesus in John 15 where he talks about the fact that he's the vine and you're the branches. And the only way to bear fruit is within him, is within him. If you remain in him, if you abide in him, the only way to bear fruit is to abide in him. So what does that mean? Where do we find the spiritual poverty that we need to be the kind of people that we should be? One of the things that we realize studying Jesus through this series, we realize, come to realize, I think, these eight character qualities are that they're his. They're first and foremost his. And that's going to lead us to praise him. That's going to lead us to praise him. But all of these, and here's the thing, all of these things, you want spiritual poverty? Oh, no, I can't see you at a distance. Okay, here we are. You want spiritual poverty... You have to see that quality in him. What's true about Jesus, if you're in him, is now true about you and will be true through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and him growing you in the same grace. In other words, to the extent that you don't forget that you are spiritually impoverished and you need him to go forward in life, you need him to be able to love people, even who you differ with, as you ought you need to remember that. And to the extent that you remember that, you'll start to flourish. You'll start to bear fruit. You're abiding in him. You're bearing the fruit. You're remaining in him. You're a branch, and he's the vine. You're bearing fruit. It's in him. It's through him. It's of him. Why? Because he is the answer to your neediness. 
Matthew uses the word poor. It means you're intensely needy. He's the provision for your need. Jesus is the provision for your need. You couldn't come to God on your own. He lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died. So now you can come to God through him. Not on your own, through him. Jesus is the answer to your neediness. He's the charity to sustain your life. Matthew used a word that dealt with such impoverished poor people, right? That they had to rely on charity just to survive, just to have the life to live. He's your charity. What he gave, he gave for you freely so that you can flourish, so that you can be a different kind, so that you can, you can come into relationships with culture, not blending in with it, not withdrawing from it, but engaging it with the hope that you have in him, and it transforms it. You can treat even the people you are enemies with, with respect and with love and with a courage that would not normally come from who you are. Jesus is your humility by which you are more than adequate before God. I can't keep taking this on. It's too too blurry. (laughs) Jesus is your humility. He was humble in your place. He was spiritually impoverished in your place. He cried on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took that impoverishment, lack of blessing, lack of God's presence, so that you could have it freely. And so that you could live a different kind of life through his Holy Spirit. One of the things that I want you to do this week as you enjoy the summer, as you endure the hot, as you um, go to one of the Wednesday night uh, things this week, I want you to think about what you need. If this is true, if spiritual poverty is the baseline and that's where you need to start, I want you to think about what does this tell you about who you are and what you need? Who are you and what do you need to be spiritually who God wants you to be? Who are you? Do you have a couple of answers in your mind? Is God working on those things? Do you have, okay, I do need to be more humble or I do need to be more loving to those I'm not like or I do need to, what is it? Now, the assignment is, I want you to take that thing, whatever answer comes to your mind, and I want you to begin to look at Jesus as the fulfillment of that thing in your place. Until you do that, you'll never have the freedom to be spiritually poor. When you do that, all manner of freedom will open up, and you'll be liberated. Begin to see the things you think you need as being fulfilled in Jesus. Begin to go to him as your fullness. That's how we begin to get the character traits that he would have us have. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love to us. Thank you for the fact that you did not spare your only son, but you gave him up for us all so that we might um, in him become the righteousness of of you. Father, we we, uh, thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you are working in us, that you have not left us to ourselves, that you have not left us abandoned or alone. You have not forsaken us. You have not forgotten us. But that you uh, are present with us and that you give us your presence because on on the cross, Jesus, our Lord, experienced your wrath and your condemnation 
so that we could experience the freedom of praising you with boldness and with access. Thank you for giving us such peace. We ask that it would transform the very lives, our very lives that we live, that we would be spiritually poor like Jesus, you were spiritually poor, that we might be able to give ourselves away through the immense riches that you supply us with every day. Let us feast at your table. Let us enjoy the wealth of the bounty of your banquet. And let us be nourished and encouraged there so that we might live life differently, freely, as the spiritually poor. We ask in your name. Amen.